This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans? We're on this journey through this uh, amazing book. If I were to be washed up on an island somewhere in the only book of the Bible that I could have with me, I would choose Romans. It's the, the, literally this beautiful work of the gospel all in these chapters just woven together. Um, and, and while you're turning to that, I, I want to tell you the story of a, of a guy named Robert, let me get his name right, Rosenthal. And Robert Rosenthal was a Harvard professor who approached a school in Southern California, or south of San Francisco, I'm sorry. Uh, and here's what he, his offer to them was, I have created this test that can tell you in your classrooms who are the, the special kids and who are the average kids. I'm pretty sure I would have gotten average, or if there was a below average, that probably been a, where I would have scored. But he, I'm gonna give you this test so you'll be able to know, and then in a year from now, we're gonna come back once we figure out who the special kids and the average kids are, and a year from now, we're gonna see what kind of results we have from knowing who are special and who are average. Now, the kids did not know that this was the test. The kids just thought it was probably one more number two pencils, color in the little circles, and that's the test. The teachers knew the test. So they administer the test, they say, hey, these are the average kids and these are the, the special, the brilliant kids in this group. And so in a year, we're gonna come back and see what the results are from their tests. And fascinatingly, at the end of that year, they were 100% right. Those who were the special kids who had that test score, they excelled at everything from English to math to science, literature, and the average kids did just average like they were predicted, but there's one caveat. The test was a scam. They chose them at random and didn't tell anyone. So the teachers went into that year believing that these specific kids were special. And because they believed that about those kids, they poured more into them, they spent more time with them, they invested extra around them, and the results were that they did better. And if there has ever been a better example of the power of believing something in your mind and how it affects your behavior, I don't know what it is. That test has been performed in multiple schools since then, and the results are always the same, that the power of a narrative in your mind affects the way that you behave, it affects the way that you perform, and it affects what you believe is possible if you believe it in your mind. Now, Romans 8, we're gonna read the first 13 verses. Paul sets up this thing where it's a battle between the flesh, the works of the flesh, and a battle for what, the life in the spirit, but the playing field where that battle is fought is the mind. To put it differently, that's the pickleball court, is your mind. You're playing pickleball with the paddles and the balls, but it's, the court is, do we have like what, four people in here that play pickleball? Did I completely choose an obscure reference? I thought everybody 
was playing pickleball. But do you know what the pickleball is? Okay, like 14 of you. For the rest of us, it's basically really, really, really aggressive ping pong. I mean, as best I can tell, it's aggressive ping pong for grownups. But um, that's the battlefield is the mind. (laughs) Is the mind. But the battle is for the spirit and the flesh. The battlefield, the pickleball court where it's happening is your mind. So with that in mind, let's read Romans 1, 8, I'm sorry, 1 through 13. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit gives, who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even your body is subject to death because of sin. The spirit gives life because of righteousness, and if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your word today with honor and with reverence. Lord, I want to approach it with carefulness to steward well this word that you've given us, this gift called the scriptures. You said that it would be a light and that it would be a lamp. And we need that as much as we've ever needed it before. Lord, I pray that that would illuminate our steps, illuminate our hearts, shine into the darkness. And Lord, for our brothers and sisters around community today who are worshiping you. I I pray for Nathan at Graceland Assembly across the street from us. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon Graceland Assembly of God today. Lord, up the street at Harpeth, uh, Pastor Bobby, Lord, would you pour out your spirit there today with Keith at 
New River and Charlie at Gateway. Lord, you are doing amazing things all over this city, this region, and this nation. And we are all on the same team serving the same Jesus. You are the pastor of all of our churches. And today we submit that to you. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So Paul is going to set the scene for us here of the difference between the flesh and the spirit. That, that, that when you become a Christian, that your life is different. It can be different than it was before. And in the difference he makes here is the difference between the flesh, living in the flesh, and living in the spirit. That's kind of it. That's the two things. And it's so infinitely simple, and yet it feels so hard to pull off on a daily basis. And I want to show you by the end of this, we only have a few minutes, but in this chapter, how the power of the gospel, it actually is the power for us to motivate us, to move and to change and to be who he created us to be. If you came in here this morning and you're not okay, and you've heard that it's okay not to be okay, I want you to know that that is kind of true, but it's incomplete. In other words, you don't have to come in here and pretend that you're okay when you're not. But Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay that way. He's given you the power to change, the power to overcome, and the power to live in a way that's different than before you came to Christ. And Romans 8 lays it out so beautifully of how it works. And we're going to see in just the three sections of this is what's true about you. Well, that's the whole name of our series. It's so important, like what's true about you? This is what Romans lays out for us, that we can believe the truth about ourselves. We're gonna see what the battle for change actually looks like and how it's fought. And then I wanna show you what the Bible shows us that we're not here to have to make these changes on our own. This is not behavior modification, life hacks, techniques, but the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to make these changes that God so much wants us to be able to make. So at the beginning, the what's true about you statement, if you go back to verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Joel, were you here last week for Joel when he taught from Romans seven? Didn't he do a great job? right? He looked cooler than I do. He was more vibey than I am, but he brought the truth, man. I'm like that, that's, I wanted you to see that, by the way, as parents, because I want you to know that uh, our youth are not playing church, that they're getting the gospel. They're getting the truth. Our kids, our children, they're not back there playing church. They're getting the truth of the gospel. And he ended last week with this idea that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And what the truth, what this says to us, this, this truth is this, Romans 7 tells us, I'm capable of doing some really dumb things. I'm capable of doing evil things, bad things. And in Christ, the condemnation that I owe that debt to God is wiped clean, it's gone. You see, condemnation just simply means what you think it means, guilty. Like literally, that gavel has fallen and you are guilty. I am guilty. 
But in Christ, the beautiful thing, God couldn't just wink and nod at your sin and say, boys will be boys. You know how they are. He understood the magnitude of the sin. He understood the danger that was with it. And so he had this plan that if Christ, God becoming man, and that Christ would take that sin on himself, by doing so, the perfect man that owed nothing, the wages of sin is death. He had not sinned. He didn't deserve death. But by taking our sin on him, he then doesn't wink and nod. He says, as the judge with the gavel, guilty, but I'm going to take the punishment for you and absolve you of it. That isn't just for the sins before you came to Christ. That is for the sins you commit yesterday, the sins you're committing today, and the sins that you commit into the future. They are all 150% no condemnation to those who are in Christ. See, in the world we're in right now, what we want what really they want is to cancel someone who has said or done something that falls out of the lines of the bounds of what the accepted wisdom of the day is. Now the problem, of course, in our world is that the accepted wisdom of the day changes by the day. But the idea of what it means when they say that you're canceled, that's just a modern parlance for you are condemned. Condemned to in some cases, you can't make a living anymore. In some cases, you are being punished without a trial. In many cases, you're ostracized from your people. You are canceled. You are condemned. And the gospel is that God has the, is the only one that has the right to cancel you, and he doesn't. Because the gospel is God's brilliant plan to cancel your sin without canceling you. There's no other way it could have been done. The only other way was to cancel you, which cancels your sin. But in Christ, he was able to say, no, I'm going to cancel your sin, and your existence isn't canceled. It's brilliant, and I take it for granted all the time. And I pray that every day I had come a little bit deeper into my heart to understand exactly what the gospel is, which is that I should be condemned and I'm not condemned and I'm only not condemned because of what Christ did for me. Now, that said, in our modern world right now, there seems to be, as best I can tell, two mindsets, okay? There's the, the progressive mindset when, when speaking of sin. Now, when I say progressive, many of you think I'm talking about politics. I'm not. When I'm talking about progressive, I'm talking about the idea that progressive in Christianity, and by the way, that didn't start last year. This started Long time ago. Progressive means that this was the best they understood at the time. Paul didn't know any better, but now we know more. We have progressed, and now we know better. Most, if not all, of progressive Christian ideology says this about sin. It says that, it, look, there's nothing right or wrong. It's postmodern. There's no right, there's no wrong. Everything about it is psychological hurt that's manifesting. In other words, you're not wrong at all. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, you'll hear them sometimes say you're stardust. 
and, and we're just, we don't need to be saved. We just need to rediscover who we already are. If you start hearing those kinds of phrases, that's what they're really talking about, is that you didn't need saved, you just needed to rediscover who you already are. There is nobody really sinning and universalism says that we're all gonna be there. That is the progressive mindset. Now, but on the other hand, there's this conservative mindset that says this, there are evil people in the world, but I'm not one of them. There are those people who are bad, but I'm one of the good ones. And what do we know? We know from scripture that the line of good and evil does not go down through the line of groups. It goes through the heart of every individual person. And parenthetically, this ideology from a conservative side is literally just a mirror of what critical theory says. Critical theory says that there are oppressors and there are oppressed. And if we could just do away with the oppressors, overthrow them, then the rest of the oppressed could be saved. Once again, drawing a line right through the middle of good and evil that is not in a heart, but in a group. Both of those are antithetical to the gospel and they are demonstrably false. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, says that inside of me is this line of good and evil, that I am capable of doing terrible things and that I am relentlessly, that I am passionately, loved by Christ. It sounds almost contradictory. How could those both be true? It almost feels like that would put a schism inside of you. But I promise you, you won't find this in any other world religion. You won't find this in Muhammad. You won't find this in Buddha. You won't find this in Hinduism. Because in any one of those, it's your bad and you need to work your way to being saved. In any one of those, there's scales and if you do just one more bad, then you're, bad, you're not gonna make it. And you live, you live the way Jess was talking about living, which is every day thinking that I didn't do enough. And you know why? Because she didn't and neither did you. The gospel says that that's not gonna be the way that you're gonna get there. The gospel is telling us this, that you are evil and infinitely loved. Jesus in Luke 11 says to his disciples, these are his buddies, the people that he loves, that he's hanging with, his squad. Do we use squad, Ethan? Is that a word that I use, a squad? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. They had the youth up here today, so I'm trying to be culturally relevant and cool and, and hip. <laughs> Jesus said to his friends, okay, they're saying, teach us how to pray. I mean, and imagine this, right? I'm like, hey, JT and Sarah, you guys are evil. But you know how to give good gifts to your son. Like, that's kind of a backhanded compliment when you think about it. But it's the picture of what Jesus was saying was that even to his own friends saying, this is the truth about you. And biblical humility means I get to believe the truth about myself. And so what Jesus is doing is not insulting me. Hey, Darren, you're kind of a, you know, kind of a jerk. You're kind of, you do some evil things. When he looks at me and says that, it's not an insult. He's just saying the truth. Because it's the same Jesus that would say, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, would go on and say, and these are the same people that I'm gonna die for, that I'm gonna give my life for, that I'm gonna pour out my blood and my dignity to so that they might be saved. He loves them enough 
to die for them and enough to tell them the truth. And you know what that means for us? We can go through our lives believing the truth about ourselves. We don't have to lie to ourselves like a progressive and say that we're all good, we're all fine. And we don't have to go through our lives living the lie of a conservative that says, I'm fine and everybody else is not fine. Neither one of those are true and neither one of those will lead you to life. Jesus alone allows us to know that you're, you're evil, you're, doing some, you're capable of doing some bad things. And on the other hand, I love you so much that even while you were yet sinners that I came and I died for you. And that is the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Jesus that came to seek and to save us. And that is the Jesus that says to us today that he wants you and I, like, died for you, Darren, you're evil, but man, I died for you. And for you, now that you know that, and there's no condemnation, how are you gonna use that? How is that gonna inform and power you to change? Because as he says, just because you've, I love you that much doesn't mean you go on sinning. Because when you go on sinning, you're not the only person at that rodeo. You cause harm to everyone around you, including God. So he says, don't go on sinning. That's what Joel talked to us about last week. You are your own worst enemy. But he builds on it now in chapter eight of how it is that we begin to make that change. And Chapter, uh, chapter eight, verse five, the battle for change. He says in verse five, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit God's law, nor can it do so. Those are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Do you see, he's using the word mind over and over and over again. Look, I don't know if you know this or not, but the battle on social media right now, I don't know, is Darren Foster in here? I'm about to insult his company. Okay. <laughs> Mike Rapp was in first service, so I can insult Google second service. So anyway, actually, let me put it differently. At the end of the day, Facebook, Google, Instagram, the competition for you, they're, they're not, they are not in and of themselves a tool of evil, okay? What they are is a tool of ad revenue. And what they get ad revenue is when you click on a bunch of crap. And the more crap you click on, the more stuff they get, the more money they get. If you ever saw, how many saw the social dilemma that came out this last year? Okay, and what did we learn in that? You are the product. Specifically, your brain is the product. So much so that when you pop this thing on in the morning, the competition is for your attention and to give you more and more and more and more attention. So when you get onto the TikTok, do you guys know about the TikTok? The TikTok begins to learn who you are and show you more stuff that you want to see to keep you spinning. Is TikTok good or is it evil? Okay, It's amoral. But the technique to get your attention comes out of my evil 
of my desire to put my mind on things that are not of him or not. But in other words, they're trying to compete for my mind and my mind, put my mind on this, put my mind on this. And before you know it, somebody's told me, I've not actually heard this yet and you don't have to raise your hand because I'm assuming a couple of teenagers. But apparently you can be on the TikTok long enough that some guy will show up on the screen and say, hey, you've really need to get up and go get, do something today. Like you've been sitting here. Did anybody have that happen? Anybody, nobody gonna to admit to that? Oh, she did. <laughs> um, it, but I suppose it takes about eight hours before they finally tell you that. But point is, you have a choice every day where you're going to put your mind. And right now, corporate media companies are competing for you and your mind. Netflix has said out loud that their greatest enemy is sleep because they want you watching so much that you won't go to sleep at night. Put your mind on things of the flesh and you're going to get results of things of the flesh. Do do you see why the battle, it's such a battle right now that it's literally, it's literally so important. The real estate in your brain is so important that companies are making billions of dollars on it. You understand how valuable that is? That they can monetize your brain? Put your mind, he is saying here that the mind governed by the flesh is death. Now when you look at the ideas of how this stuff unfolds in our lives, on the one hand, we got TikTok and you got social media competing for your stuff. On the other hand, what we've got competing for us are uh, moralism and religion. And by the way, that's the same kind of stuff you might have grown up in and around a church where it was all about morals and keeping the rules and making sure that you've got all the policies and the procedures. And if you're gonna do communion, you gotta have uh, left, uh, women on the left or men on the right, or that you can only have members get it. And, if, and the only way to do that is you, know, you check your membership card so you can get your communion all right. <laughs> like You end up in, in a situation where we begin to enforce a bunch of rules and policies and procedures and regulations that were never in the Bible because it sounded good, but we're doing it for someone else's good. And listen, a Pharisee can do just as much damage in the world as a murderer. You don't believe me? Look what happened in the last 18 months when epidemiologists and healthcare officials decided what the rules and the regulations and the policies and the procedures were based upon a very myopic behavior. And if we do this, then you are bet you this. And if you don't do this, then you're canceled. It's, it's literally religion with science behind it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. I used to think C.S. Lewis was a prophet. I only later learned that he was a historian because history repeats itself. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But to those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. From Mere Christianity, 1945, 50, something like that. 
And I, of course, am speaking specifically of what we've experienced with some of the tyrannical overreach. But understand, these exact same things happen in your own life. You can become your own tyrant, torturing yourself as a moral busybody. You can torture others as a moral busybody, trying to make sure they're enforcing the rules and the regulations. And either one of those, they all become back to what, what he calls the work of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh, we have some young people in here. When I say flesh, you probably think skin, right? Flesh. In the Bible, the word flesh speaks of more than that. It sort of speaks as our whole human experience. And when you hear the phrase works of the flesh, uh, Tim Keller refers to that. He just gives it this simple definition when he says, the works of the flesh is your whole life being controlled by a self-salvation project. So in your mind, the work of the flesh right now is now putting me on a path to try to save myself with something other than Christ. Now, if you go to Galatians chapter five, you don't, you can turn there later. Paul actually lays out specifically a list of things that are the works of the flesh. When I think works of the flesh, don't you think just the naughty stuff? Like, oh, that was naughty. That's naughty. That's a work of the flesh. Paul gives a list that's way longer than just naughty. He starts with sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and he goes right into idolatry, sorcery, which pharmakia, it speaks of narcotics, of drugs, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Here's the thing. If you were to write these things out in a list and ask any therapist in town how many of those they encounter on a daily basis, they'd have them all. Because these works of the flesh, remember, we're not saved by works into eternity. We're also not saved by works of the flesh. So we're not saved by works of moralism, and we're not saved by works of the flesh either. The works of the flesh are the works that we do to try to save ourselves. Now, if I say salvation, and you grew up in the 1980s where there was a keyboard playing, I don't know, JT, did you ever get one of these? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Bassanio, I know you had to be in one of these. I got saved like 14 times with one of these. But salvation meant go to heaven. It does mean that, but it doesn't mean less than that. It means so much more than that. The word salvation, when Jesus uses it, is a word called sozo, and it speaks of life right now. Life more abundantly right now. And if you are not living and experiencing that life right now, you have not experienced the salvation that Jesus came to give you. And I would be willing to bet that in those specific areas, it's because you're trying to save yourself not through Jesus and through the Spirit, but through a work of the flesh. Somebody who is an alcoholic would, could probably agree to this, say that when I first started drinking, I wasn't drinking to become an alcoholic. I was just drinking because I just wanted to feel okay today. I just wanted to take the edge off of the night. I wanted to not feel a pain and pursue a pleasure. I was using a work of the flesh to numb something that Jesus wanted to heal. And so the work of the flesh becomes this thing that you are now, and he goes on to say that, uh, 
at the end of Galatians uh, chapter 5, 19, 21, he says, I warned you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That it's these, I, if I'm going down this road and allowing myself to now, this has now become what my salvation is. That this is, to put, let me put it differently. When I hear somebody say something like this, this is just who I am. This is how I'm made. God made me this way. And that's, I've heard that from everybody that has a temper problem. What's it say? Fits of rage. To sexual identity. And everything in between. This is how I'm made. That is no longer struggling with sin. That is me throwing in the white flag and saying, I'm giving up. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The danger is when I say now that I just can't anymore. I'm giving up. This is who I am. This is how I'm made. And that is a work of the flesh. And it leads to destruction. And Romans tells us it leads to death. Here's what I know about alcoholism and addiction and drug addiction. Shannon and I have worked on the board of directors for 18 years at Place of Hope. Columbia, Tennessee. Mike Coop will be with us in just a few weeks here. Addiction is a 100% fatal disease if you don't get help. You may not die now, but you will die eventually with it. It leads to death, the work of the flesh. And what Paul is saying here is just saying, look, this stuff isn't going to save you. It isn't a, a giant bummer to say you can't do any of these things because I'm trying to be a cosmic buzzkill. He's just saying, this is the work of the flesh and it's not going to save you anyway and it's actually going to destroy you. And the way that it comes into us, the way that we start there, what does he say? The mind, right? It's the mind. And when I put in my mind that this is how I'm going to fix my mind here, that I'm going to, whether it's through alcohol, and again, by the way, fits of rage, if you have a temper problem, it's on the same list. And a temper problem isn't that you're angry. A temper problem is that you're really afraid. When you rage, when you're freaking out and losing it and it feels a little good inside, you're just really afraid. And it's a work of the flesh. And God says, I want to set you free from that. And the key is right here in what he is laying out for us, which is the battlefield of the mind. You're not going to white knuckle your way through it. But what are you putting your mind on? What are you allowing your mind? You know, I don't know. I actually don't have the courage to do this in front of all of you guys, but have you ever done that thing where you look at your screen time on your phone? Right? Don't do it right now because you'll, be you'll all be super depressed. But, but this doesn't lie. What am I putting my mind on? That's not a shame thing. I'm just saying this, there's some things where we could get some life that we could just walk away from and not get sucked into what the world is throwing at us to put our mind not on the things of the flesh but on the things of the spirit. And by the way, these same apps can also give us that. I've got some great apps that I use for worship and for prayer and for praise. Again, this isn't the problem. The problem is my soul and my soul and how it wants to use this tool. I'm gonna give you an example from my life and I know I'm probably burning daylight here, but the fear of the Lord, Proverbs tells us 910, uh, is the beginning of wisdom. I heard someone say once, a theologian say that the fear of the Lord defined as just a constant awareness of the thereness of God. I'm just constantly aware that he's there. And a few years back, I wasn't 
experiencing a lot of a constant awareness of the thereness of God. And over in the little building over here, uh, our little shoebox church, <laughs> what I'd become constantly aware was the thereness of a lot of people in our church that knew more about the Bible than I did. I, I was sitting in a room with, you know, guys with MDivs, right? I got people that are brilliant theologians that know words that I'm, I, I'm like, I'll be in a conversation, I'll write a word down. I gotta Google that and go back and figure out what that word was. I don't even know what that meant. And over time, as I was constantly aware of them being there and no fault of theirs at all, they didn't do anything to make me think this. Okay, this is from my own shallow heart. I began to feel this pressure to have to say and be and deliver something on a Sunday that impressed those people that were smarter than me. There's, I mean, this is gonna, I guess I can drop his name. Do, uh, Dr. Michael Easley has become a really good friend of, of Shannon and I, and he's been more than kind. We were actually texting this morning, but you know, when he left a role he was at, he would come and sit in the back row uh, with Cindy and it was a live pad. And I remember the first time I saw him on a Sunday, I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be like by the pool? Drinking a Mai Tai or I don't know, something. Um, but they felt that God wanted them to be here. And I, those Sundays I would be like, because you know, you got a guy like Easley and say, well, the Hebrew says, you better doggone be sure that's what the Hebrew says. Uh, because he knows. Like, you know, part of his halftime side hustle was making sure that people's Hebrew tattoos actually said what they thought they said. He could have charged a lot more for that. <laughs> and one Sunday, I began to experience something that I had not experienced for 20 years. My heart rate was going up. I was feeling like I was dizzy. I was, I was experiencing a panic attack. And I did what a lot of people do with panic attacks. I white knuckled it. In fact, in those days, you would know that it was happening to me because I would put my hands on the table. For some, I don't know why it was so dumb, but for some reason that would help me snap out of it. But then there was one Sunday after weeks of this where it was, I couldn't white knuckle it anymore. And I was back, we didn't, I didn't have an office. I was in some closet somewhere praying and, and, and it was happening and I could feel it. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I'm thinking I could text Mo and have him preach and then I'll just run out the back door which in hindsight would have been kind of hilarious, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we had two panic attacks in one day. Um, <laughs> two for the price of one. <laughs> but I was praying, I was like, God, you know, I was like, this is so embarrassing, it's so stupid, it's in your head, I know it's in my head, in my mind. Like it's not like this is, but you can't talk yourself logically out of something that you didn't logic yourself into. And that Sunday morning, I just realized I, have, I really have kind of one choice, and that's to come out there and say, this is what's happening to me right now, and would you pray for me? It was the scariest thing I've ever done. I was so embarrassed. And people came down and prayed for me, and it was like this amazing experience, and I actually was able to give the message this morning. And I'm happy to report, by the way, that I've never had another one while preaching. It's ever happened again. Um, but I think it's because I was able to connect the dot that I was putting my mind on things of the flesh and not on things of the spirit. 
And I, again, the constant awareness of the thereness of trying to impress somebody was something that I had to let go of and give it to the Father. And it took that away from me. And in our lives, there are things in all of our lives, these voices, these lies, these things, these arrows that have landed that send us to the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh will lead us to destruction and to death and to separation. And you could cross-reference your life with that list in Galatians. But I would suggest just go back to the Father and go to what we're gonna say, which is the power to change. The third and the last thing I wanna talk to you about is that he switches, he talks about the law a whole bunch in chapter seven, chapter six. And now he talks about the spirit. 20 times in the chapter eight, he talks about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, he says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And when you start reading this, if you start looking for a list of things to do, of life hacks, of techniques, of things that you can do that are practical, you're not gonna see it here because the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. This isn't a list, it's a who. This is a relationship. So this is the language of relationship. Like there are things in my marriage and my relationship that I don't do and I do, but they're not because it's on some list or some contract, it's because I have a relationship with my wife. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can make the Holy Spirit happy. The Bible speaks of all of that. You can squish that. You can, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't a a what, but a who. And the relationship with the Holy Spirit in our lives is something I believe with all of my heart that the Father wants us, if you've never discovered it, to discover it. For some of us, it's a rediscovering of what he already promised us. Because what did Jesus say in chapter 11 of Luke? He says to them, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your, this is the rest of the verse, your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to all who ask. He didn't say how much more will your heavenly father give a Ferrari to all who ask. But the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is, he says in John 14, 15, 16, I am not gonna leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit inside of you is now going to be your inheritance, your down payment on what is to come. That the Holy Spirit, I mean, I was with uh, one of the pastors in New York was a guy named John Tyson, and John was, uh, his daddy, or his granddaddy was a famous missionary in India, and his daddy was a pastor, and and John himself grew up in, in that world, and, and he is kind of rediscovering his Pentecostal roots. John is pastoring a church right in the middle of downtown Manhattan, and John said this, man, the future is way too scary to not be a charismatic. <laughs> and I know when I say charismatic, some of you think it means one thing or some of you think it's the other. I just think it simply means that the Holy Spirit is alive and well today, that the Holy Spirit lives and resides in each side of you, and that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, and if that is true, he will quicken your mortal bodies to give you the power to do what he has called you to do. If we just stop with therapy, the Holy Spirit doesn't get a chance to move in our lives. Nothing wrong with therapy. 
right? People say, well, therapy's not in the Bible. Well, neither was appendicitis. So you, you don't get to, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, appendectomy's not in the Bible. So do, if, we, if we wanna go down that road, there's some things you have to say. But, but the Holy Spirit is in the Bible, and I really believe that what he is telling us here, that that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He can lead you, he can guide you, he'll remind you. One of the things that I believe is his most important job is actually reminding you, Jesus says, remind you of what I said to you, is actually reminding you, you, you like you're walking out today with notes, you're walking out with things you've written down, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to make that real in your life. Jesus says, I'm gonna leave you now, but he's gonna come back and he's gonna remind you of what I've said and he's gonna take it from your head and to your heart and to make it real in your life. Have you ever asked for the Holy Spirit? As Jesus said right there, Luke 11, all who ask for the Holy Spirit, he'll give it to them. Have you ever asked? Have you ever tarried? Have you ever waited? Us moving into this world where we are right now without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a pretty scary proposition. And I might add, kind of dumb. because he didn't ask you to. He said, I'll be with you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Do you ever wonder why Jesus said it was good that I leave? Remember he said that, and the disciples were like, well, it's not good at all, like, you're right here. It's how could that possibly be good? I got you right here. But you know when Jesus was on the earth, if you wanted to get to Jesus, you had to knock a wall down, you had to cut a hole in the roof, you had to get up real early, you had to get on a boat, you had to walk on water, you had to work to get to Jesus. Because in his body on earth is take a number and step aside. But when I leave you, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, everybody gets first place in line. There is no line anymore. You are the line. You're first in line every morning with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in your life. What our world needs most, A.W. Tozier said it, a scared world needs a fearless church. And we have a scared world. How on earth, why on earth would we want to look like that? It's not who we were made to be. Jesus didn't leave us like this. He didn't leave us orphans. He didn't leave us afraid. He didn't leave us alone. He left us with the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that means that whatever the world throws at you, that I've got the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in me, and that will power me, give me the power to move forward into what he has called me to be. Amen. And you as well. I, I stand to your feet. I've got to get you out of here, but... I. What if you went out this week and just asked, Lord, would you give me the Holy Spirit? Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you baptize me in your spirit? And then, just like the teachers in 1964 who believed something to be true, they went out and acted like it was true. How much more you who are believing something that's true that actually is true, how much more would you walk out this door 
and act differently and act like Jesus. That's an incredible thought. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you make this word real to us this morning? Lord, the law wasn't able to make us see. The law could tell us what we can't do, but it never gave us the power to obey. But you gave us your spirit. Lord, would you give us, I pray right now, Lord, for those that this week, they're about to binge watch something on Netflix. Lord, would you just convict with your Holy Spirit to put our minds not on that, but on you. Lord, those of us right now who are struggling with uh, just wasting hours of mindless stuff in front of a TV, Lord, would you put our minds on you? Show us uh, those places where we can begin to put our minds on you. The law doesn't do that, but your spirit does, and we're thankful for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Guys, I love you. I'm so honored to get to serve this church, a bunch of Jesus people full of courage. I'm so excited what God has in store. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.